Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Know Your Options, the measured risk podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Larry Kriesmer. I'm here with my business partner, Bernard Sarovsky. We're on the Know Your Options podcast, and we're here today with Benaya Gorman. He's with BMSS Western Wealth Management. That's out of Alabama. And we're going to learn more about um, Benaya. And I'm particularly interested in this interview because Benaya is a relatively new advisor to the business. And it's going to be great to get a little uh, fresh impression on what's what his view is for the industry. So, so welcome, Benaya. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, let me start with that question. <laughs> yeah, let me start with that question because uh, I started also very young in the business and got my sort of some uh, certificate degrees. Like and I understand you're a CFP, which is awesome. But I struggled a little bit with the sort of, uh, maybe not credibility, but just wisdom versus knowledge. I knew I was smarter than than the person I was attempting to help, but they weren't quite clear because I was such a fresh-faced young kid. So talk to us about how you've handled that or what your experience has been being a relatively young advisor, maybe the background of how you got into the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll start off kind of how I got into the industry and then I'll kind of answer the wisdom and experience question. Cause I think that's a pretty crucial question that young advisors need to ask themselves because they're going to be asked that by the clients. So I came uh, grew up in Kansas. Uh, I went to Kansas state, go cats and I started off as a hospitality management major because I wanted to be serving people. I'm a, I love connection. I love making connections with people. So I'm like service industry, great hospitality. We, we love it. And I did it. I took an introduction to hospitality management class and they said, you're going to work holidays. You're going to look, work long hours. You're not going to get paid a lot to do it. And I said, the, the value here is not really what I'm seeing. <laughs> And so I changed my major to personal financial planning. Kansas State had a great program, still does, I would say, top five in the country. Um, and they really just prepped me for what the financial planning industry would look like. And we, and I was drawn to it because um, it was actually in the business building at my college. It was actually in the family and health services sciences building. And so instead of taking um, business like electives, I was taking counseling electives because we were more focused on the personal connection than we we're on on the finance side. And so that was really interesting. So that's how I got into the industry. Then I got connected with a firm in Alabama, moved down here to work with them. And now I sit across from clients and try to convince them to give me money. And I and I think as a 26 year old, I've only been in the industry for four years. There are some difficulties with that. And the thing is for me, 
Um, I might be a little bit different than you, Larry. I never think I'm smarter than the person across the table. Than <laughs> he I, always than thinks me. he's smarter than the person he's next to. Yeah, it's, it's a struggle, but yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and I think I have a different knowledge base than the person that is sitting across from me because we're dealing with some of the highest people um, in America, some high net worth, ultra high net worth people, some renowned surgeons, some renowned business owners, just just very, very intelligent people who just don't know this one particular sector because they've become so specialized. And so I'm realizing that I don't need to talk down to them um, and I don't need to talk up to them. I just need to talk with them and I can really use. um, And when I go into client meetings, people aren't wondering, man, is this guy 26? Like, how old is that guy? I actually don't get those questions anymore. Because when I go into the meetings, I can actually go in and be, say, hey, while this might be something I've never experienced personally, I've seen this 40 other times with other clients. And this has actually just become normal for me. And so while I may not have been done this personally, I can tell you this client situation that happened or this client situation or happened or this other client situation, I can go through all the experiences. So while I may not have done it, I can tell the client, I've done this 40 times versus this is just your one time. And I have wisdom and expertise in this area that you would have to do 40 more times to get to my level of this. Yeah, that helps. I mean, but you, you did experience it initially because you say you don't have to answer those kind of questions anymore. Is that something that just you quickly went from sort of a relatively minimal experience to sort of a lot of experience by fire? And that, that, that mm-hmm. obviously shows. Yeah. And so I think it just given a little bit of background on kind of my journey through these past four years, I think would be very important to kind of show you the shift that I experienced kind of being in those client meetings. So when I first came on, I was as a client service associate. And then when I kind of, so I did all the paperwork, I sat in all the client meetings, I was with my boss for almost every single client meeting, taking notes of making sure all the follow-ups needed to be done. I did that for a couple of years and got to understand really how the back office works, what the background is actually, how it actually goes. And I think one of the things you have to do that, because if you don't build yourself on the foundation from the ground up, you will never, it'll just always be an unstable moving forward in your career. And so I did that for the first couple of years. I remember distinctly, I, I was in a client meeting and I have a young face. Um, I know you guys can't see that on the podcast, but I look young. Um, and when I first started in the industry, I looked even younger. And you could argue that I look like a teenager when I graduated college and do probably be right. And so when I'm walking those meetings, clients see my face and they also just sense my nervousness because I haven't been in a lot of them. And so I actually had a client, they would, be, they would always ask me my age. I'm like, so how old are you? I'm like, I'm 22. I'm 23. And they go, oh, you're just a baby. Like, you don't know anything. And I go, you don't know how right you are. Um, <laughs> and because they, I mean, I didn't know anything. And I, but I was just being able to be in enough client meetings to kind of see how they work and feel more comfortable. And then to become kind of second nature to learn from um, my boss. And then we had a time where uh, we had, we had a small team and they, we had a couple of our team go on maternity leave. And so it was just me and my boss who are just having to handle all of this 
growth at our experience in firm. And I can kind of tell you kind of where my firm has uh, come from, but I just got thrown into the fire. And there's a lot of times where I just had to be doing things solo. And I can talk more about that later, but I just had to do a lot of things. And then eventually it just got to a point where there's no one else to do it. So I guess I will. And I think just being going through that really built, built my confidence in it. I think it was a confidence and knowledge base and just, just knowing and having the answers. Because once yeah. a client asks, once 18 different clients ask the same question, you're going to know the answer. But in yeah. the first few meetings, you're not going to have those answers. And so I think that kind of answers the question. Yeah, I had an interesting experience as a young advisor. I got in the business when I was 23, you know, back when there weren't actually cell phones. So wasn't they my LinkedIn president? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's been a minute for me for <laughs> sure. And what I found was the skill that I had uh, was being able to translate my senior advisor's language and some of the jargon into plain mm-hmm. English for the prospect or for the client, because there were plenty of times where I'd look at what he just said and I'd look at the expression on the on the face of the person sitting across the desk, you know, and I would realize, mm-hmm. well, they didn't understand what that what that was or what mm-hmm. that thing, what they, what they just said or how to communicate that. So I think that's where I, I was actually able to add some value early on. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think once, especially as you get more and more solidified within the industry, you forget how much you know and how mm-hmm. little people know when they come into the office. And so yeah. I had a client come in, just sold a business for $5 million, um, his portion at least. And so you're coming in $5 million and retired. He said, great, I don't need any, don't, We'll just take it off the portfolio. I'm done working. And we were talking about maybe doing a Roth conversion. And he goes and just looks at us blankly. And I go, hey, do you know what a Roth is? And he goes, I have no idea what that is. And so, but he just is a multimillionaire now, but doesn't know something that I learned when I was 16. You just never know the knowledge base of a client coming in. And that's where you really have to understand nonverbal cues when you're in a meeting because a lot of these successful business owners or people don't want to admit that they don't know anything. Yeah, I mean, and in fairness, I mean, it's not something that they focused on, you know, building their business. You know, if, you, if you're building mm-hmm. up a uh, construction company or any, you know, a Roth IRA doesn't really come into the, you know, the, the jargon of, hey, we're going to use that Roth to build this, you know, it just mm-hmm. doesn't occur. If you go um, into med school for eight years and have yeah. $300,000 of student debt, you're not really worried about where to put extra right. money. Exactly. Exactly. That types of things. Can you talk a little bit about the growth that you that you've experienced and kind of the, the you know where the assets were a couple of years ago versus where you are today, and kind of talk a little bit about how how that's come about? Yeah. So with my experience, um, I think I've been lucky in a lot of ways. I'm not going to say I knew I was going to be getting all of these opportunities, and I kind of had it planned all out. It's I got lucky in some ways and I just worked really hard in other ways. But when I came down to this firm, so my firm is BMSS Western Wealth Solutions. And when I came, we were three years old and we were a fully owned subsidiary of a large CPA here in Birmingham, Alabama. And so that's kind of the background. And so young company were financed by the CPA firm and we're just experiencing some growth. So when I came on, we had 120 million in AUM. And moving forward, then I came in 2019, COVID happened. Um, I got laid off because our assets dropped. We're a startup company. And then I passed some certifications. And then I got hired back on a few months later. It was only like a two-month layoff. And when I came back on, still a small team. But we saw that COVID was the market came back. 
And then moving forward, we cut, we kept having more business and my boss is very well connected. So we had a lot of friends coming in, seeing his company grow and his friends were wealthier. And so we just had a pretty good pipeline of people coming in early in, in the early stages, of our firm. So four years, five years in, and then in 21 and 22, we, our growth just exploded. And so it's, I've been in the industry four years. I started off when I was 22, I'm 26 now. And when I came on, we we're 120 million and now we're at 460 million and we're on track to end the year at 500 million. Um, so almost five, four X growth over a four year period. So we've, we've doubled our assets every single year since I started. Um, do, you, do you attribute any of that to your youthful look? Yes. It actually attribute all the growth of my company to myself. Um, and I take most of the credit for it. Uh, no, I would not attribute it to my useful look. I think in spite of my useful look, we've, we've grown. Um, and I think one of the things, so I started up with startup company. So I had to do a lot of things because there's just no one else to do them. And so, um, one of the quotes, this is an awful quote, um, but it really kind of is a good standpoint of kind of what our firm was. And it's just kind of like, there's no job too, too low for anyone. If it needs to get done, just get it done. And so yeah. I was doing a, just a brutal uh, data entry project that needed to get done. We needed to do it. And I asked uh, one of my guys on staff, I'm like, Hey, is there anyone else who can do this? God, I want to do this job. This does not seem very fun at all. And he goes, well, if you can find someone lower on the totem pole than you, absolutely. <laughs> and so I ended up doing that job because I couldn't find anyone. Um, and so, but I mean, it was a good project and I just got to know in depth about the clients. And so kind of moving forward in a startup company, when you come onto a bigger firm, you don't know a lot of the client relationships. But when I came on, we had not that many client relationships. And since we've grown so much, Every I basically know every single client this firm has. Um, and so I've been able to, to be it's a great spot to be. And I think that's something people really underestimate within the industry of, because it's a long-term thing. You've been with clients for 10, 20 years, but I've been here. Uh, I was only three years behind the curve, maybe even one or two, because it just took a while to get on our feet. Because uh, the first 10 million is the hardest when you're starting a firm. And then it gets easier and easier but I've got able to start on my feet to kind of be on the beginning on so many client relationships. And now they've just kind of been established and they just know me. Um, but that's kind of one of the benefits of joining a startup firm. One of the consequences is a startup firm. So you're probably going to be, you're going to have to do a lot of things and no processes. And you're just going to have to do a lot of, a lot of it on your own. You're going to have to be a self-starter because some people just yeah. don't know what needs to be done and you just got to do it. And it's better to ask for, for forgiveness and permission sometimes. Um, yeah. Not recommendation, just a little bit of advice. And we we were going, and then when I said we had a couple of people go on maternity leave, we're just exploding at this point. And it's just we lose two of our t key team members, and we were a team of five. Wow. So we lost 40% of our employees over a six-month period. One went on maternity leave, and the other one on maternity period, um, maternity leave. And during that time period, it was just me and my boss. And he was starting wow. another company called Eversource, which is our back office. And so he was pulled in two different ways as well because he's CEO of two companies. And so I have to help manage this $300 million book of business almost solo at this point while studying for my CFP um, for the second time. I actually failed it the first time. And so don't give up, kids. And <laughs> um, 
And so during that point, I was probably, I mean, I would get to work at seven, I'd leave work at six, I would go get dinner and I would study two hours in the evening and then repeat. And I did that for probably three months. I was putting in six, 60, 70 hours a week. And I would say that is probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me in my career of just, I was just in it. No one knew it better than me. I knew every single client in-depthly and luckily no major mistake happened when I was helping manage a $300 million book of business. There's a, a couple of tweaks here and there that happened, but those happened. And I, and I, Hey, those tweaks, I'll take those every day of the week for what we had to do. Um, but I just got thrown into the fire with that. And then when you get, when you sm- get thrown into the fire, you just kind of get hardened. And yeah. that's kind of where I became after 21, starting 22 and kind of moving forward. I just became a lot more confident because I'm like, I did it. I know it. Like there's no one here who knows it better than me. So I need to be in that room because I know I have information about you that no one else knows that yeah. I need to bring up. And so that was just a huge blessing, but also incredibly difficult. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Can you, yeah. can you talk a little can you talk a little bit about it? You know, clearly, you you know you're a younger guy, newer to the industry. What do you think are some of the um, benefits and challenges that you see as a younger guy coming into the industry? And what advice would you have for somebody else, kind of thinking about, you know, maybe I do, maybe I don't? How would you kind of guide your peers or even somebody younger than you, kind of thinking about getting into this industry, work expectations and what have you? Um, so I have a few friends within the industry as well, and so there's this is one of the industries where there's not really a set in stone way to do it. So let's say you want to become a doctor. What do you do? You go to college, then you go to med school, then you get selected to go to residency. And then you go to another hospital afterwards. It's just all planned out over like a 10 year period. And the financial planning industry is very different. You could have a degree in financial planning. You could have a degree in finance. You could go work in another industry for 15 years and then switch over. Um, so there's really no set stone way to do it. And so I would say for younger people who are wanting to do it, I think the the most crucial thing that you can do is if you're trying to get hired on in a young as a younger person within a firm, is I would say get certified or get experienced somehow. And so when I got laid off, I mean, there's what value was I bringing to the firm other than my hard work and my go lucky attitude? Uh, there wasn't a lot of value that I could bring. But then I passed my Series 65. I was able to become an IAR, and then I was I was able to fit for the CFP, and they knew that. So once I passed the CFP test, I was able to become a CFP, and so there was. I had proven myself once and I was already had a very clear path to become a CFP as well. And so it was just, they were able to see, okay, he can get there fairly easily. And I would say for younger people, what you need to do is maybe go get um, the series 65. You don't have to be sponsored by a firm. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is buy the study materials and go take it at the test. And then you can come in like, Hey, I'm younger in industry, especially if you're a college student, if you come to a firm for an internship at 20, 21 and say, hey, I passed the series 65, I would be much more likely to hire that person on as an intern for our firm than I would the person who didn't already have that. And so that just shows a self-starter attitude, already a base of knowledge and a seriousness because you put your own money on the line. I think your, I think your comment about self-starter, and I've, I've heard you say it on more than one occasion, I think is a key metric. Very difficult mm-hmm. to measure, though, to 
to getting ahead in this industry. I mean, I suppose it's to any industry, but uh, the fact that you're able to commit that to this industry, I think is highly commendable. Right. But you're right. There's so many channels. You can go into a bank channel. You can go into a wirehouse channel. You can go into an mm. insurance-based channel. Uh, independent RAA space is kind of the growing a lot right now, and that's getting mm. a lot of a lot of traction, and it's kind of where the industry is headed. But it's uh, it is challenging because um, the majority, I think, of young people or new people that come into this business are given literally lowercase opportunity. That's all they're given. And mm-hmm. it's really difficult to generate a client base um, starting from starting from scratch, as you've said. Uh, yeah, and of- I would say kind of on that point, while you could just graduate and go out of college and try to build your own book of business, that's a disservice to your clients and a disservice to yourself. Because when I came out of college, I came out with financial planning degree. I started and I thought, you know what? I went to a, a good school. I got I'm have a degree in this and then I got to work. I'm like, oh man, I know so much. Day one and then day three happened and um I started to realize every single day more and more that I know less and less. And I would say I know less now than I would have said four years ago. Because you really just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um and so you it's important to kind of like try to go learn underneath someone, especially when you're starting off in the industry, because so many firms say, Hey, go sell insurance to your friends and family. Well, do they need insurance? Maybe that's the first question, but if that's how you're getting paid and that's your livelihood, you're going to go do it. And um, you're not going to know anything other than that. And so I just think getting set in a firm foundation for a couple of years is just so incredibly important. And we'll pay so many ever-increasing dividends every year you work past that. Who are some of your mentors having come, you know, come, to, come up that thus far? I mean, do you have anybody you view as a, as a key mentor or on the investment side, somebody you look up to and go, wow, I really want to try and emulate that mm-hmm. type of style, anything like that? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question, especially within the financial planning industry because there, there are so many sectors that you can focus on. You can become – and I kind of – feel like a professional middleman uh, sometimes of just providing, Hey, this is the best person here, 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 and here. And so, but I do have, I have multiple mentors. Um, I actually, one of the more interesting ones is I actually have a mentor who is a financial planner, but really his skill set is he's just a likable guy. He's just friendly, funny, just an incredible networker. And I said, I sat down with him. I said, Caleb, Hey man, would you just be willing to teach me how to talk to people better, to relate to people better, to tell stories better? And so really we like we would we meet monthly and one of the, I'll just come with a list of questions and it's become more personal relationship. I'm friends with his family now. He has young kids, so I'll go over to dinner for them. And so it's become a really just great relationship that I incredibly value. But on the front end, I would just go with them and be like, Hey, I have these stories. Can we refine them together? And we would refine stories. And then I have another guy who's a CFA who I'm like, hey, really, what does an investment policy statement look like? How do I do portfolio management? What is the the risk factors of, the, of these alternatives that we're doing? I need to understand it better so I can explain to client, what is this fact sheet symbolizing? How does it, what does the subscription paperwork look like? And then my boss, who's been in industry for 35 years, um, I wouldn't call that an official mentorship, but I just get to see how he handles so many different areas of finance and how he treats clients. And so really I have a couple, I have a formal mentorship, I have an informal mentorship, and then I just have um, experience all around me that I can learn from. 
so, so osmosis can take place without even having to try. That's great. You know, it's funny because Warren Buffett sp- speaks about doing the Dale Carnegie course as being like a turning point in his career. Mm. And you're know, just being able to communicate better. And, you know, your point about having a, this one mentor, you just, you know, has making you a better communicator. It's clearly working. So keep up the good work. Um, you, you know, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, you have a CFA, you work with, about the investments you, you suggest. I have a, so we have a CFA on the Eversource side, our investment back office. I'm a CFP. And I understand, but I said that you said that one of your mentors is a CFA where you were, mm-hmm. were, were seeking guidance on how to better communicate alternatives. It kind of leads into mm-hmm. a question. What does like a general kind of recommendation look like for you guys when you, you know, when you're sitting with a prospect and you want to land their business? What, what kind of assets are you, are you proposing? And what does that asset allocation modeling in general look like without mm-hmm. giving specific advice or anything like that? So I would say what it looks like for us is first off, we don't, um, past results are not, are not guarantees of future returns. So I'll just right. said that nothing I'm saying is investment advice and uh, don't report me to the SEC. <laughs> so I would say for clients first meeting, we actually don't talk about investment allocation at all. We're saying if we're a good fit, uh, they're a good fit for us, we're a good fit for them and just getting to know them and their family and their financial sheets and their balance sheet. And so, but in the second meeting, that's when we usually talk about allocation. And so we really have three main things we use. We have equities, we have fixed income, and we have alternative investments or private assets. And so those are the three sectors. And we can do some SMA, separately managed accounts, or direct indexing as well. Um, but we only use asset managers. We don't do any of that internally. We we outsource all that, but we do a lot of due diligence on the asset managers themselves and the private alternative, those funds themselves as well. And then do you have any kind of data you could point to in terms of like how effective it is to bring those alternative assets into the picture? Or do you kind of, I mean, how do you present that to a client? You know, what, how do you make that case? Yeah. So we just guess all the time. We just say, Hey, we think this will work. Um, it's what we do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it provides a, a client a lot of confidence when you right. say, Hey, maybe it'll work. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. They love to hear that from their financial advisor. Um, right. So JP Morgan, I think within the alternative side, it's become a lot more common as I think as technology has involved. But if you put, let's say you have an 80-20 portfolio and you put 30% alternative in that, the 80-20 portfolio, it's going to have around a 12.5% volatility and a 9.5% return. You take away 30% of the equities and put those in the private alt. So you have what we would call um, a... a 50, 20, 30, 50% equities, 20% fixed income, 30% alts. You would increase your return by about a percent and lower your volatility by around 3% because you're wow. just adding a different asset class into it. But the one of the risk factors there is then the liquidity risk and really where you're getting that additional return is by giving up liquidity. But that's why we have 70% in the public side with which is a little more liquid. And then you have 30% alternative side, which is less liquid as well. And for clients, we usually don't re- recommend over 20 to 30% in alternatives unless you get over, above the $10 million liquid net worth. Right. I mean, the need for liquidity tends to be reduced by the mm-hmm. size of the assets, I suppose. Yeah. And so um, if you can see the trend within the family office industry have been a kind of a lot more private alternatives because they first off, they want more control, but the second off, they don't need the liquidity. And so they yeah. have the time horizons are very uh, drastically different than for your average jail. 
Yeah, actually, just backing up a little bit, can you talk a little bit about the process? I mean, you touched on it ever so briefly about your first meeting with a client. You don't really talk about asset management. Can you just talk a little bit about you know who are some of your target clients and then how you know how your process works? I mean, are you working with like newly created wealth? Is it and where are these referrals coming from and things like that? So, I think that's the challenge and the question that everyone needs to ask themselves: like, where are we getting clients and who our clients are? And so. We are getting our clients from two direct pipelines. One uh, first pipeline is my boss's Rolodex. He was in private banking for 35 years, very well connected within the industry. Um, and so a lot of his friends and colleagues and people just know him and so who are wealthier people. And so that's how we get clients first off. And then second off, which is just a major, major pipeline, is our CPA firm. CPA is the most trusted ad- advisor within all industries. And so they come out of the basis of trust. And then our CPA firm focuses mostly on business owners and businesses. And so when they sell their business, they're going to obviously refer them to uh, in-house people who do good work. I would I like to say that we do good work, um, but we're biased there. And so that's where our maj- majority of our um, growth has come from. So I think we got started off early with my boss's Rolodex, and now the CPA pipeline has really opened up, and it's kind of been a more flow. So we actually haven't had the prospect at all wow, in my time here because we fantastic. just we've just been trying to maintain. We've we've actually had to turn people down because we just couldn't handle it um, as much, and we're getting to a, a point where we have hired on more people. But yeah. And how, so that how has that process been? I mean, the hiring process, you know, as we're sort of coming out of COVID and unemployment, it's at like all time lows. Uh, you finding that dip? Are you involved in that, or is that the role for your for your president? Is he taking care of uh, recruiting? So we we have um, basically a chief of staff now. That wasn't the case four years ago, but again, when you grow by four x, you have to manage that growth a little bit. Um, so I am, I will meet with new interviewees. Um, sometimes it just depends. Um, but that's usually handled by my boss and chief of staff. But again, when you work for a firm as small as ours, um, hiring one person is fairly easy. Um, versus if you're at a bigger corporate company, especially if you're hiring, we're not hiring people who we need 25 years experience. We're just hiring another associate as like, I've improved my career and things on that nature. Um, and so we've not found it difficult to hire. What we have found that it is difficult to find talent within the financial planning industry because a lot of it is just so intrinsic. You can, yeah, every person has to have the technical expertise, but that's kind of just, Hey, do you want to get in the door? You have to have that expertise versus, are you actually good at your job? And I would, I would say the financial planning industry is so broad and there's so many different terms for financial planner that it's really hard to differentiate one from another if you don't know anything unless you've been within the industry for a while. Talk about, you've only, again, relatively new to this business, but is there something that you find frustrating or that you've bumped into that you'd really like to solve or change or have an impact on in the industry or in the, in the process of working as a financial advisor? It's a difficult question because every industry you're going to have want to have to change things like in the field of medicine, I would love for people to stop getting sick, but then the whole medicine industry goes away because if you have no sick people, you don't need to have doctors. Um, I kind of have the same inclination of financial planning. I wish everyone was just more educated on financial planning and understood those concepts better. 
but then I want to have a job. Uh, And so I think that's one of the frustrations is there's so many ways that you can make an impact on your wealth for that. And the biggest issue that we have is just educating our clients. I'll give you a good example of like a challenge that we had. So COVID 2020, we had a client, a few million dollars with us. Great. COVID hits, market's going down, down, down. And then I think like a few days before the all-time low, a client just calls us and he's been calling us and says, I cannot handle this anymore. I'm losing all this money. And I just, I don't want to hand, I can't handle the volatility. I need out. I need out. I need out. And just terrified. And we say, Hey, we invest for the long-term time horizon. Everything's going down. It's not just specific to portfolio, just giving him all the reasoning why he shouldn't sell, just kind of hold the course. It's been two weeks. Just don't look at it. Just turn off, turn off your computer, go on vacation, um, do whatever you need to do. Um, and he said, no, this is my money. I'm selling. And we say, hey, this is your money. You can do what you want with it. So we sold off. He sold near the low point and then the market recovered. He never invested in cash. And now I think he's lost over $2 million of returns because he's never reinvested since because he's always thinking the market's going to crash even more. And I think that's just one of the frustrating things. You can only teach someone so much or educate someone so much. But again, that's where the psychology of financial planning is. That's kind of where the the math and art of financial planning kind of coincide. And I would just wish um, people would trust us a little more, but also try to educate themselves a little more than reacting with fear. And that's just in that one particular scenario. But I think the biggest issue that we have is just educating our clients. And when you understand something, you feel more confident in it. Do you think that in a situation like that, if you could have been forthright and tell the client that you know, he's, that the, all the losses he's incurred or all the losses he's going to incur would have brought him some peace of mind? Or do you think that he was out of there no matter what? There's no, I don't think there's anything we could have done. I think it really shows that he's never reinvested hmm. that um, the volatility of the market, really, he just couldn't handle it. And he was just looking at it way too much. Um, that's sort of the, what is it, Atkins Razor, where you just have a, such a difficult time. Once you've decided to exit your investment strategy, mm-hmm. then you're on the razor's edge of when to get back in, particularly if mm-hmm. you've chosen near the bottom. It's one thing if a, if you get out and, and losses continue to happen, then the client can feel justified in making that decision. Yeah. Um, but then it's really difficult to try and get back in. So yeah, yeah, and that's, I that think is that's frustrating. Really, I have to agree. It's really that's, difficult. Uh, that's one of the um, one of the one of the challenging things. That and trying to get on the front end of just financial education in America is mm-hmm. so oh, unbearably weak that it's you know pathetic that people can graduate from high school and not have a basic understanding of even how to try and accomplish retirement planning. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I congratulate you on taking this path and in getting on the front of this. I think you've got a fantastic future ahead of you, Vinaya, because it's just you've you've connected with a, a great firm, a great pipeline of, of prospects and businesses, and it just seems like you're you're going to be um, you know a force of nature in this in this process. Yeah, it's been very re- refreshing. I have to admit, you know, to speak with someone who's younger and is so passionate about this industry, yeah. and it's you know, kudos. But before we wrap up our talk today, is there anything that you would have liked us to ask that maybe you didn't or have, a, have another comment before we wrap up? Yeah, I was thinking like one of the questions I would have, like ask myself of like, how do I do it? Um, and I think that's a great question. Uh, no, that's, that's not it at all. There's so much I don't Wait, Is there a bottle, <laughs> some kind of juice or something? Yeah. Something we yeah, no. Right. I would say coming into the industry is 
especially in the high net worth, ultra high net worth space. I think um, I've talked to multiple advisors, especially in this space, the family office space. And really for you to feel really confident in the industry, it'll take around 10 years of experience. So it'll be, I'll be 32 before I'll be really confident that I can walk into most client meetings and lead them. And so I think that's one of the things you just have to realize um, within this industry is how long-term it really needs to be and the passion you need to have to kind of go in it. It's not just, Oh, I can go switch jobs. It's a relational business and it's long-term. And so people aren't going to want to work with someone. if like, Oh, they're going to be leaving in two years. And so I think that's kind of one of the things that has been, I've been learning every single year moving forward is kind of how long-term these relationships are and how intimate these relationships are. Cause it's just such a, intimate thing and you get to have speak into people's lives um, in a way that no other person gets to, whether it's their family, their friends, their pastor, their coworkers, they can't really talk about all any of these money things with anyone else other than you. And now they're you're first the only person they can talk to with. And then second off, you're the only expert they know. And yeah. so that's just a lot of responsibility you have to have. And you have to have a lot of different sectors or, or specialties to kind of speak into. Um, so I think that's something that I would just kind of note for younger people um, coming into the industry. And then I would say another thing that about the industry, I just think is just fascinating is how many different specialties that you can go into. You can become a tax expert. You can become an investments expert. You can become a family dynamics expert. You could become a states and trusts expert. You could become a retirement expert. And there's just so many sectors that just take so much knowledge and expertise in. And my firm, one time we're, we're doing a 1031 exchange private placement product. And my boss comes into me and says, Hey, we have this client who's a good fit for, I'm going to need you to figure this out. And I said, great. How do I do that? And he goes, you got it. And just walks it just right. walks away. And those are just kind of the type of things that you really have to come into the industry with the attitude of like, there's going to be things that I have no idea how this works, just complicated. And you're just going to have to figure them out. And that's where you're really going to be bringing value. If you can take something that you know nothing about that, the, that your lead advisor or someone else knows about, but just doesn't have time to manage, you can go, gain an expertise in that area and handle it personally. And then you can always ask them questions. They're not going to be mad at you if you ask questions, but if you can handle most of that yourself, that'll just be a huge value add to any firm that you go into. So now for that product that we use, we've done now five of those and I do those solo basically at this point. And that's brought in $10 million of AUM to the firm, those themselves. And I had to learn that from the ground up, but now I'm a, 1031 exchange expert people on the podcast can't see the quotation marks on my fingers. Um, But that's just kind of how you have to go and you just have to keep reading and reading until you understand it. And then once you do it, um, it's kind of funny uh, through the private asset manager that we use, I become a test case on some of the things you shouldn't do on the front end for those people. And you're going to make mistakes and just really um, I had the model fail small, fail often. And so if you fail small and you fail often, you're going to be recovering from those mistakes often 
And so you're going to be kind of seeing what do I not need to do here? What do I not need to do here? And if you fail small, it's not very significant. So you can avoid those big major mistakes later on. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned I started young too. My favorite was, I don't know, but I'll find out. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a and clients are totally answer. okay with that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cause they don't know either, but you're saving them the effort of finding out that that's out. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. You just well, can't say I, that too many times. Benaya, thank you so much. Benaya Gorman, CFP with uh, BMSS Wesson Wealth Management. And uh, it's been just a pleasure to talk to you. And you're a credit to the young folks coming into our industry. And I hope there are hundreds and thousands more like you out there that are coming into the business to replace the guys like us who are getting a little bit uh, gray. And well, speak to yourself. Okay. <laughs> guys like me who are getting a little bit gray and ready to uh, look at the next generation. So really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. No thank you, guys. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP. 49 faces looked to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com.